Republican Governor Sam Brownback and Jeff Collier praised it. Democratic Governors Kathleen Sebelius, Mark Parkinson, and now Laura Kelly concurred. What were they excited about? They were pointing to wind farm development in Kansas. The state is a hotspot for wind power. On highways through the blustery hills and flatlands, you can't miss these turbines. So far, something like $14 billion has been invested into Kansas wind projects, and more than 40% of Kansas energy comes from wind. At the Capitol, a Senate bill would inject an unprecedented level of government regulation into the state industry. Welcome to the Kansas Reflector podcast. I'm Noah Taborda. This week, senior reporter Tim Carpenter examines the legislation with Kimberly Sfati of the Advanced Power Alliance and Alan Anderson, an attorney who works with companies interested in being part of the wind farm projects. Here's Tim. So Senate Bill 279 is expected to land this week under the spotlight of the Senate Utilities Committee, which is led by Senator Mike Thompson, a Johnson County Republican. He's an interesting combination of former TV meteorologist and uh, climate change denier. So we'll dive into details of the bill in a second, but Kimberly Spotty, can you summarize what this sweeping legislation is attempting to accomplish? So yes, thank you so much, Tim, for the opportunity to be here with you today. Um, Senate Bill 279, as you say, it is a sweeping piece of legislation. It's onerous, it's um, anti-renewables, but it's also anti-business and anti-investment in the state of Kansas. And so within the context of the 12 pages um, that comprise Senate Bill 279, there's uh, requirements related to sound and um, you know other perceived issues like shadow flicker. There's um, broad requirements on setbacks, um, takings of, of private property rights. Um, it's it's so all encompassing. It also really delves into altering longstanding existing legal contracts. So the bill uh, really is problematic on a multitude of levels. Um, this is far more than just, well, let's cite wind farms in a, in a responsible way, which the industry already does in Kansas, but that's one conversation. This bill uh, goes down a whole litany of rabbit holes, but really at the end of the day, sends a message to the industry, which, which developers are hearing loud and clear, which is you are not welcome here. We are not interested in, in having your billions of dollars of private investment. Alan Anderson, could you pick up that thread? What would be your assessment of this bill? You know, tell us what you think folks trying to build wind farms for a living might think about this legislation. Kimberly described a lot of the, you know, the issues related to the specifics in there. And I would add globally, it is couched as a, you know, a citing bill that's looking at different criteria. That is disingenuous to look at it that way. In reality, what it would do is it would end all wind energy development in Kansas. And what's important about that is if you think about it through a policy lens is we have traditionally in both in the statutory framework and the Kansas constitution, we allow these local decisions to be made at the county level. And so land use and the way these things are used are traditionally at the county level and it requires a, you know, some statutory changes that, that are not included in this bill in order to take that over at the state level. Because what it's saying is in Topeka, we wanna decide what people can do in Ford County or Thomas County or counties throughout the state related to their own use of land. And again, fundamentally what this bill would do, and we can certainly get into the specifics of, of all the different things are included, but it is knowingly ending all wind development in the state of Kansas. And what that also does is it takes away 
not just the, the industry working on these things, individual landowners are, they take away their ability to use their land as they seem deem fit. And so they, they are taking away property rights from enormous amount of Kansans by this bill in Topeka. Yeah, it sounds like a red flag. Okay, Kimberly, just help us with uh, the, some of the nuts and bolts of wind power network in Kansas, like number of wind farms, turbines, power production, economic impact, just a little bit of that. Sure, absolutely. Just kind of on a broad scale, we have about 41 operating wind farms right now in Kansas. We have three that are actually under construction. Um, you know, we will have new numbers um, out in the next couple of weeks related to actual investment, but we're probably upwards of uh, $14 billion at this point, both with steel in the ground that's come online in 2020 and then uh, what we're also seeing under construction. So we have those, we have the 41 operating wind farms, three under construction. And then Alan, why don't you go ahead and talk about investment, uh, direct and indirect jobs? Right. So one thing to give a little background, we started in 2012, helping bring forth some of the actual data and information. And so the, the reason for that is it is difficult to get some of these numbers and get some uh, sense of breadth and scope of the economic impact, both from jobs and direct financial payments to both landowners and communities. So starting in 2012, we were, and again, the law firm is somewhat uniquely you know, able to do these things. So we delved into publicly available information, uh, filings at different regulatory agencies and all these different things to, to study the economic impact. Well, now, uh, you know, on Monday, we'll release the 2020 report. So looking at this economic impact as of 2020, and it paints a very uh, significant picture for the state of Kansas. So if you look at, uh, jobs and we go through again each of the projects calculate the jobs and it ends up being a job creation of over 22,000 jobs in the state of Kansas and that includes both uh, construction jobs includes operational phase jobs and then those those indirect but induced jobs from the wind industry in the state of Kansas so that's that's significant so that has you know broader economic impact both in rural communities where the projects are located and beyond that but very significant as far as payments there's multiple types of payments that are made. There's obviously direct payments to landowners and, um, and then payments to local communities, both through uh, current uh, contribution agreements and donations and those that will be projected future on the tax base. And that adds you know, another you know, landowner lease payments in the, in the magnitude of you know, 962 plus thousand dollars directly made to landowners. And then payments to communities, both in the form of contributions and donations, and then uh, projected tax revenue as some of those projects are on that basis. And that's another over $650,000. So you're looking at you know, economic impact of you know, somewhere in the $1.6 billion range of direct, direct payment economic impact, yet alone then the indirect impact that $1.6 billion has on the state of Kansas. So it's enormous. And it's been a great success, as Kimberly mentioned. We're talking about 20 years of operating projects. We don't have to guess what will happen with these projects. They've been incredibly successful for these host communities, both economically and beyond that. And we know that because communities that have hosted projects continue to host projects. So they've seen what happens, they know the economic benefits, and then they say, we as a community want to move forward further. So we have a lot of information we don't have to guess. Okay. Well, I grew up on a farm and I've also been all over Kansas as a reporter, including spending a day watching turbine construction in Lincoln County. Uh, 
there are many places out there where for more than a century, I presume ranchers cursed the wind uh, right up until somebody offered him some cash to plant a big white turban on the hill. So I know you're all's orientation, but what about the criticisms of wind farms? You know, these things are large, they make a whooshing sound and at night there's flashing lights. Uh, can, you, can you just touch upon a couple of the points that somebody might make in opposition to wind farms? My husband and I own and operate a farm in Ellsworth County. And so Ellsworth County is home to two wind farms uh, within the community. And, um, you know, some individuals do have concerns with, with viewshed. They are, they're not fans of looking at the turbines, whether it's in the day or the blinking red lights at night. And that's perfectly understandable. Um, you know, my, my husband always tells the story about his grandfather that fought tooth and nail um, against uh, three communications towers from being on his land. And well, what happened? He rejected the lease and then the towers literally went like right across the highway um, about, you know, literally a stone's throw from where they would have been on his ground. And so he was um, out the revenue, but still got to look at the communications towers uh, every day. So, you know, certainly understand it, you know, renewable energy can change the view shed um, and the blinking lights there, they are, and they are out there at night. And the industry is working really hard with the FAA to um, alter that requirement. So it, it can be more user-friendly, um, but we also have had more chapter 12 bankruptcy filings in our state uh, within the ag community than any other state in the country uh, in the last several years as the ag economy has struggled. But we don't know of any farmer or rancher that has filed for chapter 12 that has turbines on their land. So yes, there may be some issues with how that people don't like the way they look. But when you look at a community like Ellsworth, where uh, it's an ag-based economy entirely, and what has really kept that um, community afloat in recent years is the revenue generated off those wind turbines. It's steady, it's consistent revenue, it's allowed those farmers and ranchers to go out and buy new equipment, it's kept the equipment dealers in business. So there may be some perceived downsides, but there's also very real and significant and tangible financial upside to an entire community, not just to those individuals that are receiving income. Alan Anderson, do you have anything to add to that? I, I, I Obviously, there's be people that are going to look at these turbines that don't get any revenue from it, and it, it might ruin their sunsets and so forth. Sure, sure. And I, th I think that's... Uh... It's important to recognize there is nothing we do that leads to advance, advancement that doesn't have some impact. Roads have impact, uh, cell communication towers have impact, uh, rural water districts have impact. Um, all these things have some level of impact. So there's, there's nothing we can do that doesn't have some. What we do know is if you go to communities, take Ellsworth County, take, take Ford County, take Gray County, take uh, Pratt County, all these counties have, are good to look at to say, you are a county that had a wind project. You were able to see how it worked, how it operated, how people that participated, how people that didn't participate, how did they react to this project? Where we have projects, we find those communities continually want additional projects because while there is always some level of impact, the benefits significantly outweigh anything else uh, related to that. So that's kind of an important uh, point I think we make because if you take Ford County with six operating projects, I believe it is with some in construction and further in development, when they had the first project, they were able to look at that and decide, should they do more? 
they did a second, they did a third, they did a fourth, they did a fifth. Clearly at that point that it is recognized by the community if they didn't like it, they certainly in a, in a republic such as ours, they would be able to vote in new commissioners that would go you know, differently on that question. They haven't. And the reason is because the positives are so significant. And Kimberly gave a great example, very specific to Kansas about the benefits to specific farming and ranching operations that can't be overlooked because of the difficulty of those industries. University of Michigan studied this, and what we find, and this is certainly true in practice in Kansas, is that those that are participants in wind projects have a significant number of factors. One, their community has better infrastructure, so they're able to uh, attract secession planning. So those members of their family that may or may not have been interested in staying on the ranch or the farm, they're able to bring them back or keep them because the farm now has a more, or the ranch has a more significant uh, consistent revenue source that allows them to plan for the future. And so they do that. So uh, those that host turbines will plan for the future, have succession planning and have better infrastructure within their communities. And that has enormous impact for rural communities in Kansas and elsewhere. Okay, let's get into Senate Bill 279. It's called the Wind Generation Permit and Property Protection Act. It outlines page after page of state government mandates regarding setback distances for the turbines, as well as light, sound, and other environmental metrics. It I think it expands the role of county commissions in approving construction plans, and it also offers property owners uh, more leverage in terms of potentially blocking a proposed project. One of the first things that I thought of was, what about individual property rights? And, and it's been touched on, but but how, how, how would this legislation uh, potentially intrude to my ownership of my 640 acres of Kansas prairie grass. What this bill would do is it would completely remove your ability to use your property rights for wind energy development, period. It would remove it from the entire state of Kansas. And we talk about the you know, billions of dollars of economic impact that has happened for this first 20 years very successfully. It is saying from this point forward, it will remove that. So the bill, absolutely would take property rights as it relates to the use of the wind on people's land, and it would end that in total. And so it would be the state of Topeka determining that people in Ford County can no longer do that which they have done quite successfully and quite happily anymore. It's over with this bill. And so it is, it is taking the property rights away at the state level without going through any processes that we normally do. If we're going to impact property rights, there's a number of legal implications. We have um, obviously local control issues. We have statutory provisions for due process that we're supposed to go through. So if I'm going to take someone's property rights away as a county, there's a process I have to go through to, to give this due process because that's fundamental to the nature of property rights. What this is doing is really uh, taking away that due process uh, and allows the state just to do it on a whole throughout the state without any local input. Counselor, would you say that if this were to pass and become law, I'm a little skeptical that it will, but if it does become law, would you anticipate litigation? Well, the first part, I, I, I'm with you. If this, I would be surprised that anyone that supports property rights, supports you know substantial and competent evidence as we think through those things, that it does pass. Assuming it does pass, absolutely. I would, I would be surprised if there was not litigation uh, over a number of factors through the bill. Mm -hmm. All right, Kimberly Swati, I've, I've read through the noise restrictions in here. I think I saw 40 decibels mentioned at a distance of a mile from a, from a turbine. 
-hmm. Is that significant? I, you know, I'm just thinking a refrigerator, I think makes about 50 decibels of sound and breathing is about 10. So <clears throat> help me understand what that means and, and what's your view of that? So um, the, the, the decibel requirement is, uh, is certainly an interesting one and it's a tactic that's definitely used in order to um, ensure that, that you know, whatever project some individuals don't want um, cannot meet any threshold. On average, um, most Kansas counties don't restrict wind turbine sound limit below 50 decibels. I think if you stand uh, right underneath the turbine, it might sound the equivalent of about a microwave. Um, you know, I, I'm where we live here in, in Topeka or certainly at our farm in Ellsworth, um, we live miles from train tracks and yet we can absolutely hear uh, certainly the, the blaring how, uh, sound of the horn as well as the train going down the track. So, you know, I think it, at some point you have to look at the precedent that this is going to set for other industries. So, you know, if you don't like the sound coming off of that manufacturing facility or you don't like the smell coming off of, you know, whatever uh, food processing or dog food processing facility, um, or even, you know, certainly further out west, uh, the packing plants, um, that, that's the smell of money. Um, so it, it becomes really difficult when you start going down the path of restricting things to outlandish levels. But I know that Alan, um, you, I believe that you've worked on some of the county um, ordinances as it relates to sound requirements. So you probably have some additional thoughts on that. Yeah, and this is, this Kimberly is exactly right. If people are trying to stop wind projects and they put something into whether it be a bill or try to propose things at the county level, uh, putting sound out there is a typical one we see. And the reason for that is it's very complex. Sound, sound measurement and how we come up with the, the right right, decibel levels is not simple. And so this is another great example where it's been put into this bill. And like you said, it's very lengthy, very uh, sophisticated, very detailed. There's no question that the people who propose this or those who will be reviewing this will not be able to fully understand it because of the level of complexity. You know, the, the world sound experts would have to come in and provide some real information uh, related to the sound, uh, sound levels and the protocols that were included in order for anyone at, at the, in the committee or in the broader legislature for them to even understand what is being proposed. And that's another problem with this bill is if you think that it, it's important to provide due process as we consider restrictions that would take away people's property rights, a fundamental part of that is that the people who are reviewing it have to understand what they're looking at. And th I, nothing within what I understand is this process is going to bring in true sound experts in order to analyze that. It is, it is one that doesn't fit with the other 40 projects in the state of Kansas by any stretch. And it's one that is done for, just as I said initially, it's disingenuous to say this is really related to siding. It's meant to end wind energy. But if I'm on the committee or I'm in the legislature and I'm gonna take the whole state's property rights away as it relates to wind energy, I certainly wanna understand what's in the bill and then that it won't be able to be done as it sits here today. Kimberly Spotty, the, the bill also, I think would, would allow no more than one turbine per square mile. That, that sounds sparse, but also might it result in just expanding the geographic uh, boundaries of a wind farm? The one that, again, kind of going back to two provisions that you would include in a piece of legislation if your intent is to stop an, an industry, this, this is one of them. Um, these are not provisions that are meant to um, help create good siding guidelines or to instill responsible siding. 
uh, a one turbine per square mile does nothing more than completely impede on private property rights, landowners' private property rights, and it um, severely increase. I mean, it significantly increases the cost of a project. Uh, would also increase the footprint of a project, which I don't think anyone would believe it, it would, is desirous. And then also, if you were to let's say you were still able to possibly uh, piece together a wind farm. Uh, using the provisions included in this bill, the cost of the project would be so much more significant. And you're also disrupting so much more ground by way of um, roads and the collector lines that uh, it just makes it completely uneconomic, um, unfeasible, unworkable, and uh, certainly not in the landowner's best interest or in a community's best interest. So I think both of you could address this. There are setback restrictions that look to me like uh, it would, it would, isolate the pockets of Kansas that you could conceivably put wind turbines in. And I know the idea is to try to put these turbines in precise spots where they generate the most uh, turning speeds uh, that turn the blades. I mean, you, you, you can't isolate these away from people because some of those places are not going to be the most advantageous for a turbine. Am I, am I right? Yeah, fundamentally, those setbacks that are listed are so far outside of anything reasonable. I mean, there's no scientific engineering or other basis for those distances. And what they do is they make it absolutely, not only difficult, impossible, because the land, you know, the, you basically have to have single or groups of landowners with massive tracks. So it takes away these, you know, property rights of anyone under, you know, people that own 10,000 acres could host, you know, a couple turbines type situation. This is not done for reasonable siting. It's not in relation to anything on the 40 projects in Kansas where they've been sited very successfully. Uh, this is solely based on making it impossible to site turbines. Okay, another legal issue that, that arises is the retroactivity, uh, perhaps back to 2011. Anybody want to take a stab at that? Sure, I'll, I'll kind of jump in there. Yeah, pretty pretty remarkable that uh, what it would do is private contracts. And again, in Kansas, through both you know excellent scholars on this and the Kansas Supreme Court, we have made very clear that we in Kansas respect people's right to contract, and that you know it's referred to as the freedom to contract. So we trust our citizens, with obviously some exceptions, you know, on, on making sure fraud or some of those things don't take place. But outside of that, we allow our citizens the freedom to contract, and that has been preserved and protected. Uh, throughout the history of the state. So that's fundamentally one thing this does is it says, I'm not going to allow you kind of a, a nanny state type concept where I'm going to go into an individual landowner in Ford County and say, you are not sophisticated enough to know how to contract as it relates to your land. Then it's going to go back to those same people who have already contracted and say, we're going to alter the contracts you have in place all, all the way up to, of course, what would happen here is cancellation and termination of, you know, mass amount of contracts. So we're going to not allow you to contract in a way you want to. We're going to go back and revise your contracts in a way you have not asked for. And we're going to then basically, because of that, take away the ability for a project to proceed because the land leases and things will have, a, have, have terminated. That's remarkable. Uh, it is certainly legal, legally dubious, even if you got through somehow the policy you know, implications there. Kimberly Swati, you've been and worked in the Capitol for a long time. And um, 
I've, I've listened to the Kansas Chamber of Commerce and the Kansas Farm Bureau and other organizations testify on certain uh, business-related legislation. Many, many times they've spoken about in, in, in favor and against legislation because they want business certainty. They want in a regulatory context. So, so what does this kind of bill do in terms of regulatory certainty? Well, uh, actually, it, it provides a lot of certainty if this piece of legislation were to move forward. I think every single developer that has provided um, testimony has said that, that they will not invest another dollar in the state of Kansas that they won't be able to make the business case to invest in the state of Kansas and not just in wind, but in renewables uh, in, in the future. And so when I look at um, the economic opportunity that Kansas stands to, to have in the next 10 years, 20, 30 years, as we continue um, our energy transition um, and energy innovation, frankly, um, we know that in large investors, whether they're companies or hedge funds or private investors, they're going to be looking at places where uh, that are favorable for investment. That doesn't, it doesn't mean that they're always having to roll out the red carpet. It just means that where there is policy stability. And um, Kansas will have, by way of moving forward with Senate Bill 279, if the legislature chooses to do so, will have sent a very strong and, and resounding message to all industry and investors across the United States and the world that Kansas took a, an industry that had invested $14 billion, worked very closely with communities and landowners to cite fantastic economically beneficial projects, and they pulled the rug out from underneath them. So, um, you know, Oklahoma, Missouri, Colorado, uh, Nebraska, Iowa, they're all going to be standing around and applauding because they are going to, to uh, pick up the slack of investment that Kansas would have otherwise received. So um, th that, that is a chief reason why this piece of legislation is, um, is so detrimental. When I, when I read this bill, it seems like it was written by a coal industry lobbyist uh, worried about market share, uh, losing market share to win. Am I reading too much into this or, or how, how much further does this bill go beyond state regulations for coal or natural gas plants? Oh, this bill, so I don't believe that the bill was actually written by um, anyone from another um, uh, sector of generation. I um, have been told that this bill came from individuals in Michigan and, Nebraska and New Hampshire that have been known um, uh, opponents to renewable energy development. So we do know the source of where some of these points have come from, but to be sure, virtually every single element in this piece of legislation is far above and beyond any requirement for any um, for any other fuel source in the state. I mean, even a nuclear facility, if it was sited near the existing uh, nuclear facility, doesn't have to go through the siting process. Hmm. Alan Anderson, I'm wondering about ancillary businesses that might be in Kansas, component suppliers. There's even technical education programs that are built around wind farms. What, what about those secondary effects? Oh, it'd be, it'd be absolutely devastating to those. And that's a big factor in the job impact in the state of Kansas, which has obviously an economic impact on the greater state and the local communities. So you have everything from the large you know, employers, such as a Siemens Gamesa in Reno County, that is one of the top producers of one of the, one of the more key wind energy turbine components that, you know, 
would not be able to utilize its product in the state of Kansas. All the way down to you take Cloud County Community College. Cloud County Community College has a wind tech program that has been an incredible success. So it has um, students that come out of there, 100% employment in one of the fastest growing industries and job categories in the country and will be for the next decades. And it will take people from Cloud County Community College and say, there are no jobs for you in Kansas. Where what has been happening before is those students are able to go work in rural communities where they, many of them want to work with good paying jobs uh, near the places they wanna be. And you'd impact those. You'd impact every part of those, you know, either component or service industry items. So those who provide gravel, those who provide um, transportation, uh, you know, the, the move dirt, all those different jobs absolutely eliminated from the state of Kansas. So those service providers that are often local to where these projects are located in rural communities that often have, you know, sometimes shrinking economic opportunity, it eliminates those completely. So the reverberation of this through the Kansas economy cannot be understated. It should be uh, if, you know, known as people move forward potentially with this bill that they're not just hurting the wind industry and they're not just taking away the property rights of all those citizens in the state of Kansas. They're harming all of those contractors and people who are working in the industry as well. Alan is exactly correct, but then I also look at over the course of the last year, when so many sectors of the economy, uh, state and national economy, were truly suffering due to the pandemic, we, we you know, safely and using all appropriate protocols um, were able to still move forward with construction of several wind farms in the state, and in one case, repower an existing wind farm. And those kept, you know, those, the, the, the construction and the repowering kept jobs in those communities, um, catering businesses, Restaurants were able to pivot to, to cater on site. Um, we had like a, a, a Napa Auto Parts that provided oil lubricants to, um, to the wind farm and they had the best year that they've ever had. And, and that allows them to, to keep employees at a time when many organizations are shedding employees. So again, to Alan's point that the, the ramifications of this bill aren't just to the industry, but if this were to have passed, if this were to uh, become law and have passed, it would have completely negated all of the, the, the wonderful stories that did in fact keep a lot of those communities alive and thriving during a time of otherwise economic suffering. Before I ask you both to have a concluding thought, Kimberly, what was the future looking like for wind in Kansas, we'll say over the next couple of years, absent this kind of uh, government intervention? So the future for, frankly, the energy economy in the state of Kansas is, is truly exceptional. When we talk about um, whether it's through uh, repowered wind farms, new wind farms, uh, solar battery storage, green hydrogen, the sky is the limit. And that means literally thousands of new jobs, billions and billions and billions of new economic investment. I cannot stress that. Um, Kansas is primed and ready to go to launch uh, this, this full new energy economy building on what we've uh, building on the base of the last 20 years. And, and Senate Bill 279 um, is more than a wet blanket. It is halting and it halts uh, not only you know, planned investment in the next couple of years, but significant opportunity going forward. Truly unprecedented significant opportunity. Okay. Uh, concluding thoughts, just 30 seconds or so. Alan? What say ye? 
Well, I appreciate this time. And I think this has covered a lot of topics that I, that I hope have resonated with people. A bill like Senate Bill 279, there is no question it is a, an assault and a taking away of property rights and certainly not providing the thought and the due process that one would expect from um, this kind of enormous impact. And when we talk about the enormous impact, we do need to recall as has been talked about here, we're taking it away from local communities. We're taking property rights from individuals within the state of Kansas, and we're taking away the ability for businesses to interplay with uh, the, the renewable energy industry in the state of Kansas that has massive impact both on local communities and individual businesses and people. Kimberly. Uh, so concur with everything that Alan has just said, but I would also add to that that the renewable energy industry has worked um, tirelessly for the last 20 years with landowners, with counties, with the state to try and create um, a, a, an economic framework that is truly beneficial to everyone. And we look forward to doing that. We have never been an, or an industry that has said no, that we weren't willing to talk with people about ways to make sure that um, ground is protected, uh, look at what we did, did with the talk grass heartland. And so um, it's just this bill is absolutely a non-starter, but we hope to continue our investment and continue partnership in the state. All right. I think we'll have to leave it there. I want to thank our guest, Kimberly Spotty with the Advanced Power Alliance and Alan Anderson, attorney with the Pulsinelli Law Firm, who specializes in energy. Thanks to you both. Bye.